0: Conspiracy show with
1: Richard Sering from Zuma Radio, AM seven forty. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. This program is pre-recorded. But back to live programming next Sunday, God willing. And thanks to Don Jeffries and Ali Siadatan for filling in the last two weeks. They did a great job. Thanks, guys. J.J. French, founder, guitarist, manager of the world-famous heavy metal band Twisted Sister is here this hour. He has a brand-new book, half-business guide, half-memoir, of his life in rock and roll. It's called Twisted Business, Lessons for My Life in Rock and Roll. And then coming up in hour two, we'll meet a former deputy coroner from the Midwest, Donna Francart. She'll discuss her years of... Medical Legal Death Investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths. And she'll discuss her complex relationships with both the living and the dead, including some supernatural experiences. Wow, who put this show together? I'd listen. Uh, In addition to founding Twisted Sister, that sold more than 20 million records worldwide, J.J. French is one of the top entrepreneurs in entertainment. After taking over as manager of the band in the 70s, French developed Twisted Sister into the most heavily licensed heavy metal band in history, leading the group to perform more than 9,000 shows in 40 countries. I have to tell you, I really enjoy Twisted Business. It's an unexpected, inspiring, whirlwind story of transformation and redemption. Twisted Business follows French's adventurous, filled life, from growing up in New York City in the 60s to working as a drug dealer and struggling as an addict before quitting cold turkey and finally to creating and cultivating Twisted Sister and turning it into one of the most successful bands in the world. J.J. French, welcome aboard, sir. How are you?
2: Oh, Richard, thank you uh, for having me on. It's always a pleasure. You know, you have your, your show. It gives me so much entertainment with all of your guests, and I'm 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 actually uh, humbled that you have me as a guest. You know, oh. I,
1: I love listening to your show. Twisted business lessons from my life in rock and roll, and I don't know. Is this your term? Did you create a new genre called a bizmoir? Is that yours?
2: Yeah, I actually from a marketing standpoint, I came up with the idea of a bizwar. Well, I was thinking to myself, when the book was coming together, I think you you are we're all in the entertainment business, right? So the entertainment business is always, oh, what have you done for me lately business? And how do you differentiate yourself from other things? So the first thing I thought about was um was it's a memoir and a business book. And we were trying to figure out which one I was gonna write. And I said to my co-author, isn't it like any business person who writes a book is telling them their story of how they became the business person that they became? I mean, that's the journey. So it's a memoir and it's a business book. So I decided you take the term rom-com for romantic comedy or dramedy is a dramatic comedy you know, that they use in media. So why not come up with a bizwar? And I said, and if the word is that effective, every book from now on that's a business book will be regarded or referred to as a bizwar. So that's really what I'm thinking behind coming up with the term.
1: It's, it's interesting because for fans and the listeners who don't know sort of the trajectory of your life and your career, you did all the sex, drugs and rock and roll before the rock and roll.
2: Well, I did it before the band. Right. So the sex, the sex, drugs and rock and roll thing did all happen at the age of 15, which is a great time to do it if you're going to do it in 1967. So if you look at the bullseye year of the uh, baby boom generation, you know, I was a baby boomer. I was towards the end of the baby boomers. Uh, You know, I I was born in 52, but that was part of the baby boom generation, which was the largest hump of the population at the time. So when I was 14 years old, Sergeant Pepper came out. So I always look at that and say, wow, I was at the bullseye. But when Sergeant Pepper came out, I still wasn't smoking weed. You know, that didn't happen until the following September. And finally, somebody said, you should smoke pot. And I was like, I don't know if I want to get high. I don't want to get high. And so he put me in a closet and he said, keep smoking till you get high. You know, so he sticked me in a closet. I kept smoking. And I, after about 20 minutes, I came out. I was blasting. I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, how much is this stuff? And they said, well, you know, it's a, you buy a nickel bag. You get eight joints out of it. A nickel bag, $5. And I said, wow. So you buy, you buy the joints separately? He said, yeah, you get a nickel bag for 5 bucks. You make eight joints. You sell it for $8. You make 3 bucks." I thought, man, I said, so what after a nickel, what do you buy? And then they go, you buy an ounce. And I go, what's an ounce cost? Now, Richard, this tells you how old I am. <laughs> Ounces of marijuana back in those days were $15. Okay. <laughs> That's like saying by my father, you know, back when I was a boy, gas was three cents a gallon. You know, it's one of those <laughs> kinds of stories. Right. Or when I was a boy, you could see Led Zeppelin for $3. Whoa. Right? <laughs> so. I said to my friend, can I buy an ounce? He goes, yeah. I said, how many nickel bags do you got to have an ounce? He goes, seven. I said, wait, wait, wait. I can make $35 on a $15 investment. I said, all of a sudden, I'm thinking there's a business here. I was telling people to get into the marijuana business like 55 years ago. Now everyone's in the marijuana business. I was ahead of my time, so to speak. So I thought my, so my parents had no money to buy me guitars. I said, this is a lucrative profession. The problem, seriously, the problem was was that this perfect trajectory of being 15 in 1967 coincided with the whole hippie explosion in america and with that hippie explosion was the drug explosion and it was the rock and roll explosion and of course then there was the politics involved because the war was the big deal it was anti-war now you know these days there's a division left and right republican democrat and you know trump not trump whatever it is. you know you don't know where your fans are but back in those days richard everybody hated the war. Everybody hated Nixon. You know, you stand up on stage at Woodstock, 400,000 people, you go, I hate the war. Nobody is going to argue with you. No one's going to give you the finger. They're all going, We hate the war. I hate to say it was a simpler time, but it was a simpler time. You know, it was us against them, meaning us under 30 and over 30. And we were not divided by Democrat, Republican. It was this thing. So I enveloped and lived a life of uh, activism anti-war activities, drug dealing, drug taking, and going to rock and roll shows every weekend. So I was immersed. And when you're immersed in it, um, you can't even tell how bad it's getting. So over the next five years, the whole scene that happened in New York City, you can imagine what the Lower East Side was like when the heroin came in. It was bad. And it wound up destroying everything. So we started off as hippie flower children. And my parents would say, you know, you shouldn't smoke pot. It's going to lead to heroin. And I'd go, you have no idea what you're talking about, man. We're like, we're not like, this isn't the 50s. We're hippie flower children. We like LSD. And five years later, my mother was right on the money. The whole scene had become
1: heroin infested. Your initial purpose for getting into, into the drug business was so that you could buy amps and guitars and go see your favorite bands, right?
2: Yeah, but I also indulged, you know, I, I, mean, I took as much drugs as I sold. So I was high 24-7. I mean, my parents put me in a rehab clinic at one point because I was, I was an addict. And, and I, um, I was getting high. I don't think I was not high for five solid years. I don't think there was a, a moment, except when I had my tonsils out, I couldn't smoke. But I don't think there was a moment in the five years that I was not high because I, I smoked like 20 joints a day. Took LSD 250 times, gotten a heroin, uh, DMT, Angel Dust. I mean, you name it, and you and we did it in in copious amounts. Not only that, but I went to Europe in seventy one and Amsterdam was the number one drug capital of the world in seventy one. And what did I do in Amsterdam? I sold drugs in Amsterdam. I live in a drug dealer hotel. But, you know, it's a serious hotel, Richard. When you go in and sign your name on the paperweight, it's a half a pound of Afghan hash
1: is the paperweight. <laughs> oh, um, I, needless to say, that's a serious hotel. Let's go back to February 12th, 1964. You're watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You said, I want to be that. I want to do that. What happened to that dream?
2: Well, that dream was always there. But, you know, that dream is one of those crazy dreams. You know, like, Richard, when did you decide you want to be a radio personality? What point did this hit you <laughs> that you wanted? To, what, what point?
1: Uh, let's see. Probably when I was about 12.
2: Okay. You heard somebody on the radio, like and said, I want to do it. What was the point for you?
1: Listening to uh, the tonight show through my parents' bedroom uh, door at night, listening. I wanted to, I wanted to be a broadcaster, Johnny Carson. Okay.
2: All right. So that had an incredible impression on you. Correct. Right. Incredible. And you're 12 years old which means you're at that impressionable age. When you ask people like you and me in the entertainment world about what was the inspiration for us being what we are, this is the difference between people like you and me and people, let's say, are in the business world. Most businessmen who become successful become, become businessmen after college. You know, they don't know what they're doing yet. They may take finance. They may take business. But the point is the passion part hasn't arrived yet in them. But guys like you or people like you and me, it's the same story. At the age of 10, I can't tell you how many actresses I know who you say, when did you want to become an actress? They go, I was 10 years old. My mom took me to see Annie on Broadway. And I went, oh, my God, I have to do that. You know, and then you follow your dreams. So when the Beatles came out on Ed Sullivan, yes, I looked at the television screen and said, That's what I want to do, because I didn't want to become a jewelry salesman like my dad, because his friends are being murdered. I didn't want to become a politician like my mother suggested, because Kennedy had just been assassinated. So I was sure that wasn't exactly the safest profession. But Richard, what would have been cooler in 1964 than to have a number one song on the radio with girls screaming and being a rock star? That was cool. So I said, that's what I want to do. However, my first gold record However, if somebody put their hand on my shoulder at that very moment and said to the young John Segal at the time they said, "Okay, you will have a goal. you you'll be you'll be a rock star." Whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. So, you have a gold record. And I go, "Really when?" thinking it's going to be in a year or two. You know, I'm 12, right? I'm 12. And they go, "It'll take 20 years and 6 months from today." I may very well have said screw that, by the way. I may very well have said 20 years and 6 and that's absolutely true. 20 years and six months from the date I saw the Beatles on TV, Twisted Sister got its first gold record. So the beauty of not knowing is the beauty of not knowing. You don't know. So that was it. So let's, again, to your point, 12 years old, see the Beatles on TV. 20 years later, Twisted Sister, what happened? Well, the first thing that had to happen was I had to go through the whole drug scene and clear that out. So now I've cleared it out. Now it's 1972, which is only eight years later, right? I still had 12 more years to go to that gold record, mind you. However, the 12 years later person, that's the 20-year-old John, had come to the conclusion that drugs and alcohol had no business being in the rock and roll world or any other business for that matter. I had lost my taste for not only the drugs, but I lost my taste for people who were doing the drugs because they were full of crap. And I just got, I said to myself, you know, that's not for me. And, and as I detail in the book, the book goes through the 11 versions of Twisted Sister. People don't know the 11 versions of Twisted Sister. God knows by the time we hit much music in Canada, we were a fully formed entity, a fully formed entity that everybody saw. And, and, and I have to just say, I could not thank much music more than I could possibly thank them. I thank them every day. But, you know, your rules in Canada are very tight. They only allow a certain amount of things in because you have to play Canadian. Uh, You you know about that. Right, right. right. CanCon.
1: We call it CanCon.
2: Yeah. So that means that anything outside of Canada is blessed to be allowed in Canada. So we were one of those bands that were just like, come on in. And our relative record sales against the population, the general population in Canada was higher than any other country. So, for example... You know the ratio of record sales in the U.S. versus Canada is always 10 to 1. Right, right. So you sell a million records in the United States, you sell 100,000 in Canada. So we sold 3 million records of Stay Hungry. We have sold like 900,000 in Canada. Wow. you are three times that, okay? So Canada went really nuts on us. But again, I mean, I'm kind of pushing this thing forward, you know, like fast yeah. forward a little bit. But to your point of the John that succeeded was the John that learned its lessons. And by the time that John was 20, that John had seen.
1: 10 or 11 iterations before, you know, the classic lineup with yourself and Dee Snyder and so forth. So um, those early years you were playing bars, you were like a cover band, right?
2: Yeah. We started out like everybody does as a cover band. So the earliest versions of the band were uh, we did songs. Remember this was a glam era that the band came from. So we looked like, you know, cross-dressers because that was the hip thing to look like. <laughs> we never got blowback on that. That was just the way it was. So we covered um, Moth the Hoople, David Bowie, T-Rex, Iggy Iggy Pops, Alice Cooper, you know, all the, the glam, uh, ghoulish kind of stuff. There was a lot of it out there. And that was the beginnings of the band.
1: And, and did you, from the get-go, did you sort of assume the role as the business manager, the marketer, all of that, the promotions guy?
2: No, I was a musician. And I did not sign up to do anything more than play guitar. In fact, I was so happy that I didn't have to do anything. I was thrilled. I just showed up and went, okay, if I'm in the band, I'm a guitar player. I don't want to know about anything. I wasn't, I had no intentions of doing it. You know, I didn't take over until we had already had misfires by several other managers, if you look at the 50 years of the band's existence, nearly 50, I've managed it about 40 of those 50. But for 10, we went through a lot of stuff. So my first manager was a guy named Frank Frichon. Okay, I had enough said about that. So Frank Frichon was the first manager. And then he lasted about two years. And then the next manager was the drummer, Mel, who took over. And Mel's the guy who hired me. And I always thought that Mel was like a manager kind of guy, so that didn't bother me until Mel stole the truck from me with the guitar player Keith, and then held it for ransom and then smashed the equipment up. So that was depressing. So after that occurred, now we're talking 73, 74, 75. Now we're talking uh, Labor Day weekend 75, and um, I look at the bass player, Kenny, and I go, do you want to continue or do you want to stop? And he went, "I, I don't think we can continue. So we broke up for two months. And I went to work as a waiter at Terrace on the Park Caterers in Flushing Meadow. And he went to work in Corvette's department store. And we did that for two months. And then he hated working at the department store. I hated working as a waiter. We decided to put the band back together again. That's when I got Eddie Ojeda. At that moment, I became the manager.
1: And uh, one of the things that you do in the book is you take the name Twisted from Twisted Sister And each one of those letters stands for one of the life lessons, one of the business lessons. T is for tenacity, obviously. You, I mean, did you did you set in your mind a day like after 10 years of struggle and having, you know, your former bandmates who were, I'm guessing at some point were maybe like brothers to you and then they totally betray you, steal your equipment, hold it for ransom, you pay them, they return it all, you know, busted up. Did you say at this point, okay, if we don't make it by such and such a date, I'm, I'm going into the jewelry business? You know, that's a great
2: question. And no one asked me that question before. So that is a great question. So you asked me, did enough self-doubt creep in at any one point where I just said that was it? Okay. So self-doubt number one occurred in 1975. We broke up for two months. When we got back together again, and I took over management, and then I hired D. And d was a really important piece to the puzzle, because the band had already had a decent reputation in nineteen seventy three and seventy four but because of the alcoholic alcoholism of the band members the the reputation had crashed. My agent at the time said that you needed to hire a guy who could sing Led Zeppelin songs because that was a very important thing to have and Dee sang Zeppelin perfectly. I just recently found a recording of, of us doing the whole Zepp first album, and I just found it, and I just sent it to all the guys in the band. They were blown away because it sounded exactly like Zeppelin. So it was perfect. Um, that band went through many fits and starts and fits and starts and fits and starts and fits and starts. And and as chronicled in the book, you know, we were turned down more times in a bed sheet and came back more times in Freddy Krueger. And so <laughs> as the rejections piled up, and Richard, we're in the entertainment business. We know about rejections. Don't we know them?
1: Oh, okay. you could wallpaper a room, right? With the uh, with wallpaper the rejection letters.
2: reject, Unbelievable. So as the rejections piled up, the interesting thing about our scenario is that the band was a popular bar band and we were playing to thousands of people. So we get a rejection letter in the afternoon. Thank you for saying blah, 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 no. And then we go out at night and play to um, 2,000 people. So you could get over that. The problem was that because I was projecting enough in the future, I, I saw the drinking age was going to change, which was going to affect the bar scene. You know, part of success in this business is being able to foresee things. So let me ask you, Rich, do you are you good at foreseeing things? Do you are you always conscious about, you know, the next six months, next 12 months in terms of your own life and how you run your life? Do you try, do you try to figure out where things are going to be heading?
1: You know, I, I, I wish I were much better at that. I'm, uh, I'm like a, a basset hound. I've got my nose to the ground, you know, and I'm sniffing around. But I, that's, I'm blessed to have a, a wife who's wonderful at that.
2: Okay. So here's the thing. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Keith Richards was once asked this question. They said, what's the difference between you and Mick? And he goes, well, Mick gets up every morning and he thinks, What am I doing this morning? What am I doing in 10 days from now, 10 weeks from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now? Keith says, I get up every morning and I go, I got up this
1: morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Keith. I'm Keith. <laughs> I'm Keith. I'm Keith. Well, London School got- of Economics, right? Mick went to London School of Economics. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so he's blessed by having Mick, right. okay? who, could, who could see things. Or at least plan ahead. And Keith just is trying to get his shit together. So I think the thing about Twisted was it was always one foot here and, you know, looking out. And seeing where things were going, you know, and I was getting concerned because the scene that we were in, which was unlike any music scene that's ever been, it will never happen again because listen, musicians, if you're listening to me talk, you're never going to be blessed with what I was blessed with a drinking age of 18, which means kids who were 15 had fake proof that they made in shop class. Richard, does shop class even exist anymore? Does anybody even know what shop (laughs) class is? Right. You're laughing. I don't think anybody even knows what shop class
1: is. Uh, I think they, who is is George Carlin, that line about uh, in one year, they, Went from uh, shop class. Went from making hash pipes to uh, nunchucks or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, to the point, you can make anything in shop class, couldn't you? So they made phony proof. Right. Back in those days, it was the easiest thing in the world to make fake driver's licenses. Everybody had a fake driver's license, and there was so you had you had hundreds of thousands of kids in these bars that held to five thousand people. This was a luxury that we had to 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 plan. Except here's the problem: the New York State Legislature decided to raise the drinking age. And I said to myself, aha, if that's going to be the case and they're going to do it slowly, they're going to like move it up one year at a time until it got to 21. So I started looking down the road and said, man, in three years, if we're not out of here, we're going to these clubs are going to go out of business. So we were confronted with here's the reality. I felt like we were on an iceberg and we were and the iceberg was melting. And I'm waiting for a helicopter to come down and pull me off this iceberg before it. Collapses into the ocean. So with that in mind, the obsessive nature of the band driving itself to get out of the scene and to somehow get a record deal came up.
1: All right. We're, uh, we're going to take a quick time out, JJ, and uh, we'll be back and discuss more of the lessons from your life in rock and roll. JJ French, founding member of Twisted Sister and uh, the author of co-author of or sorry, the author of the Bismarck uh, Twisted Business lessons from my life in rock and roll. Back with more of the conspiracy show in two minutes. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government.
0: You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer
1: Radio. J.J. French is with us, founding member of Twisted Sister and uh, the uh, bismar. Just out is Twisted Business, lessons from my life in rock and roll. Um, there were so many near misses on your road to finally, you know, the, the, uh, the brass ring. Uh, I lost count, but it seems like there was, I don't know, six, seven near misses where you almost had that record deal. And then some like an asteroid coming out of, you know, and hitting somebody on the head. Just just go through some of the uh, some of those near misses if you could.
2: Oh, God. So I don't know. Like the the. um... Well, going back to the original band, the first time every any producer ever showed up, these two big time producers came to see the band and wanted us to take us to a studio. And the lead singer was so drunk he forgot to make it to the studio that day, and that deal fell through. That was early on. That was just like one example of God deciding to screw with us, just a little bit, you know. But when it gets to the 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 thing with D and the band, you know, we start making these demos, you know, and like everything is 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 uh, you know, we're making these demo tapes and we're trying to get a record deal, a record deal. And and we get approached by um, this guy named roddy Shoshua, and um he um he he 's a european guy and he and he and he sees in the band this opportunity to 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 sign the group and and for some reason and i don 't understand what happened in this particular case, but um something went off in a conversation that we had with him and he kind of turned himself off with it and it kind of fell apart. And we thought maybe it was the way we were acting or maybe the way we were coming off. It was weird, uh, but we felt like we missed an opportunity. So the next time an opportunity was going to come, we weren't going to mess with it. And the next uh, opportunity finally showed up in the guise of one of the most famous producers in the world, which is Eddie Kramer. And Eddie Kramer was right. Jimmy Hendrix's engineer, producer, uh, legendary guy and um we were told that jimmy that that we were told that, that that this guy was going to uh show up and um you know and 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 how did we know he was going to show up? Because some girl came up to me during soundcheck and said that her mother worked in a bank and that this guy named Eddie Kramer, who's his famous producer, when she said, how are you doing, Mr. Kramer? He says, very good. She goes, well, what are you going to do this weekend? And he says, I think I'm going to go see a band called Twisted Sister. Now, what's the chances of Eddie Kramer walking into a bank, telling a random teller and that teller's daughter happens to be someone who comes to see Twisted Sister? She comes in and she tells me Eddie Kramer's coming. I don't believe her. Eddie comes down. Here's the problem. the night Eddie came down was the gasoline strike in 1979 people don't understand what the gas crisis was like we had two big gas crises we had one in 73 and one in 79 but what happens in a gas crisis people don't go to clubs they just can't afford it they can't they can't go out so the club was nearly empty But eddie kramer shows up but the band was prepared band the band played a great set eddie kramer signs the band and um <clears throat> we finish recording this stuff and we spend the next several months trying to get signed and nothing is happening. And I wind up saying to the band, like maybe we should go to Europe and, and see if we can get a deal. So I go to Europe to a thing called the Meetum Festival. I don't know if you know Meetum, but Meetum is this conglomeration of record labels where more deals get signed in this one weekend there than anywhere else in the world. And I meet a whole lot of record people. And the first people I meet is Freddie Cannon from Career Records. who was a famous label. Freddie was a new, was a, a car salesman from Detroit. So everything was, babe, babe, babe. Love you, babe. This is great, babe. Here's the deal, babe. He pulls out a three-by-five card. He goes, babe, here's the deal, babe. $50,000, babe. Babe, babe, babe. You're going to, babe, you're going to fly over here. Babe, you're going to record my are going on a tour with Scorpions, babe, 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 Then I also meet the Mizells, which were a a German or a Dutch couple. They had a lot of money. I met them. And I met this guy from Rococo Productions. I met three people, but it didn't matter. I had a deal. I come back to the, the band. I fly back to New York. We got a deal. This guy, career records, Freddie Cannon, babe, everything's babe. Love you, babe, babe. Well, babe never called me back. Babe never responded. Babe never replied to, in those days, you know, we had telexes. We didn't have emails in those days, you know, so you didn't respond. So that was a, that, that was a, that was a crusher because I came back with a deal. Well, the next thing I hear is that the Mizell's they're interested. So they fly to New York. They open up a new label. They meet with us. They go, listen, this is great. We're going to sign you guys. But we've got three records coming out before you. And then you'll be in the fourth act. I said, what are the three records? They go, Johnny Carson's Greatest Hits, Pope John Paul's mass, uh, New York Yankees, Yankee Stadium uh, speech, and an album by a new band called the Big Fat Pet Clams from Outer Space. You do have that album, don't you, Richard? The Big Fat. Pet Clans outer space. of Matter Space. I certainly that's one of the number one ones with in a bullet. collection. <laughs> so, so the Johnny Carson album comes out at bombs. The Pope's album comes out at bombs. Big pet fat Pet Clans of Matter Space goes nowhere, and they fold their record label. So now we lose that deal. Then we get a call from this guy Peter Halka from Rococo Records. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, this is it. I love you guys. Now this is a couple of months later, and he. Flies to New York and he meets with us and he gives him our new demo tapes and he goes, "This is for real. This is for real. I absolutely swear this is for real." Great, this is great. He flies to L.A. to open up an office in L.A. Flies back to New York, hands us contracts. We sign all these contracts. We give him the new demos. He flies off back to Germany. I get a phone call from my lawyer the next day. Are you sitting down? Yeah. Why? He said he had a heart attack on the plane. Oh man. I went, what? He said, yeah. I said I said, is he dead? He said, well, he may n- not be dead in, in reality, but the deal is dead. It's over. So that was a crushing blow. So those were three back-to-backs as an example. And there were way more to come because Eddie Kramer was trying to promote the singles and, and that he recorded with us. So he goes to all the record labels, and the record labels are systematically turning us down over and over and over and over and over, and over again. So we're getting all those rejections, plus the Eddie Kramer rejections. And it's just one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. So to your point where you said, was there another time when you kind of looked at each other and went, is this over? It was coming really close.
1: Really, really, really close. What, What kept you going? Because, you know, there's another thing in business where, yes, tenacity and the difference between those who succeed and those who fail is, you know, that person gets up the 99th time after being knocked down. But there's also kind of a rule in business where you also have to know when to quit because, you know, you could just keep going and, and, and lose everything. So what kept you going?
2: We knew we were good. We knew we were good. We couldn't accept that these confluences of circumstances were continuing to work against the man. And we couldn't get signed in the United States because all the record labels in New York thought we were terrible. Why, Richard? Because when you don't get signed early, then they all think you suck, so therefore no one's going to sign you. So we started wondering if we had a scarlet letter on our chest. And things were really starting to get bleak. But just on one of those nights, like probably right after the Rococo production thing where the guy collapsed, a fan walked up to me in the club and said, look at this, man. And it holds up a newspaper from England called Sounds. And he goes, do you ever see this newspaper? I said, no. English rock paper. The guy says, look on page three. On page three, there was a chart. So all the writers had their own little personal chart. And one of the writers, Dante Benuto or Jeff Barton or Malcolm Dome, one of these three, had their little hot song charts. It was independent metal bands. Somebody had sent our single over to Europe. And he had gotten it on his desk, and he fell in love with that. We were number one. We're number one. We're number one somewhere. I don't even know where the place was, but we're number one. I freak out. So we call them up. We call Sounds Magazine, and we go, I can't believe we're number one on your chart. What does that mean? And the guy goes, "Not nothing, really. It's a personal chart. It's my, I just happen to love it. But I'm playing the record for a lot of people over here, and they really like it. And we want to send a reporter to the United States to see your band. So they send this guy named Gary Bushell who comes over and sees the band play at a club in upstate New York and he writes a, a he writes a huge story called Sister Sledgehammer. And the story gets seen by the president of a punk label in Europe. And we get the phone call from the guy who says I need to come over and see you guys. And this was 1981. Christmas time 81. And we thought I don't think he's going to make it over. And he says to um, my co-manager at the time, my, he says, what's the best day to see the band? And my co-manager said, well, they happen to have a big concert in Poughkeepsie, New York, and, and, and that would be the time to come see the band. So supposedly he's going to come and see the band. So this is how cynical we are. You know, we're in the dressing room. He's supposed to come over and basically, you know, is this guy ever going to make it over? No, he's going to die in a plane crash on the way over. But if he doesn't die in the plane crash on the way over, he'll die in the car crash on the way to the venue. But if he does happen to make it to the venue, the lighting rig will fall on the band and kill the band. But if the band minds up surviving it, he will die in the way of the dressing room Will slip on a banana and die and that was the thinking of the band so what happens is um he shows up sold out band on a great show and he walks to the dressing room and he goes well i want to sign you guys and we're like yeah okay sure yeah no 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 i really want to sign you. yeah yeah sure okay just uh yeah send the papers now he walks out and he says to my co-manager, he goes, I don't understand it. When you tell a band you're going to get signed, they're freaking out. Why don't they care? He says, Well, you got to understand their past. Uh, they're very cynical. So D goes, 50 bucks says he dies on the way back to the airport. Mark goes, 100 bucks says the plane will just be destroyed by the IRA on the way over. Well, the bottom line is he gets on the plane. He flies back, okay. However, this is December. In January, the worst blizzard in a hundred years hits London and wipes out his office. Isn't this? Just too perfect. Oh, okay? man! His office is now destroyed.
1: Okay, I got to so, we're going to do a cliffhanger we're take a break
2: here. And we will continue shortly.
1: <laughs> with the misery and the mayhem, it gets better, <laughs> folks. <laughs> All turns out well. JJ French, founding member of Twisted Sister and the Bismarck, Twisted Business Lessons for My Life in Rock and Roll. Stay with us. The truth is not out
0: there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett
1: from Zoomer Radio. When we Left this story, JJ, it was another major disappointment, So yeah. this this guy's going to come over, write this great article on the band, take it back to Europe, and the uh, a snowstorm, a freak snowstorm, wipes out his office.
2: So yeah, so the guy from the record label's office gets wiped out. However, he soldier[s] on, and they do a deal. And comes April of, of 1982, and my lawyer says to me, "Guess what? We've done a deal with Secret Records. You guys are going to be on Secret Records. You're going to do a deal with Secret Records. We've got the deal. Pick it up at Kennedy Airport. I drive to Kennedy Airport. I go to the uh, international office there, pick up the contract, meet all the guys in the band on." Northern Boulevard in Queens, I was centrally located where we all lived. We pull out the contract, we put it on the hood of D's car, and we're looking at it. It says, Twisted Sisters, secret record. All we have to do is sign. D, Mark, Eddie, me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So we sign the deal. It just so happens that that afternoon, I had a copy of the Daily News. And what was on the front page of the Daily News that day? England goes to war in the Falkland Islands. And I said, you know what? There's going to be no natural products to make records because they're going to have to use it for fighting the war. I said, this is just perfect. Why are we signing a deal in a country that's about to go to war? They have not been to war since World War II. So bottom line is we do the record, we make a video for the company, and then we get a phone call from Electric Lady Studios where the producer, the owner of Electric Lady Studios says to me, I understand you got a record deal. And my deal that I made with Eddie Kramer was that you're going to have to pay me for four times what it cost you to make your demos and if you don't pay me I'm going to break your legs. Nice. Lovely. Which I explained in the book. So he threatens to break my kneecaps. And I'd never been threatened. And the band had played in a lot of dubious locations for years and years and years and no one ever threatened me. But this guy did a mob threat. I'm going to break my legs. And I thought this is the irony of ironies. You finally get a record deal, but I don't have my legs broken. If I don't pay this guy, so we—I don't get—I don't want to get too specific in the book, but let's just say that we knew a lot of very colorful characters in Long Island, and we got one of them to have a copaesthetic arrangement made.
1: Right, with, guys with their nipples over lady. here.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, Nikki the chair, Frankie the shoe, Freddie the fork, you know, and and we make a, a copaesthetic deal, and we pay off. And now we go do the record. So now we finally make the we get the record done the summer of 82. And we come back to the United States and we're so thrilled that we actually made a record. I mean, come on. This is it now. This is a te- Finally, you know, finally. This is a, a 10 year journey. Finally, we have a record out and we tell our fans, thank you so much for 10 years of support. But Twisted Sisters going to England and we're going to tour Europe. And thank you. Goodbye. It's wonderful. And you know, we do a farewell show and, and we spend this money and we take out these radio ads. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and we get a phone call from my lawyer and i said what's up is he sitting down i go why he said sicker just filed for bankruptcy (laughs) oh
1: that is just that's like a punch to the gut and i wasn't even in the band
2: yeah so you know the point here is the book describes recovering from these kinds of how do you recover well obviously we recovered and and i i can't give everything away in the book because there's a reason why you buy the book but but the ability to come back time after time, after time, after time is a resilience pattern by which we learned how to deal with it, you know, and and dealing with rejection is really, really tough. I mean, I, uh, we followed a pattern of rejection recovery, which was called mourning it. Reflecting on it, I'm um, re- retooling and reapplying. And 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 this, by the way, Richard, is a business lesson that can be used in any business for any reason, not just the music business. It's any business. So what we would do is we'd get this horrible news, we'd think about it, we'd mourn it because it hurt, right? You can't you can't pretend it doesn't hurt. You'd be crazy if you pretend it was hurt. But you kind of process the hurt, and then you kind of reflect on it. You know, something. Sometimes when bad things happen, they happen because you don't deserve to have uh, happen. Maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe you. Really Aren't, you know just because just because someone says you suck doesn't mean you don't suck that's one of my favorite lines in the book but like just because something bad happens doesn't mean that you have to fold your tent but it was bad it was critical i have to tell you right then this moment that i just described to you when they went bankrupt and we had to cancel that european tour after we said goodbye to our fans in the united states this was it this was the moment that the rubber met the road this was finally this was the last shot and what could we possibly do to recover from this last crisis. Well, obviously we recovered because you wouldn't know about Twisted Sister if we hadn't recovered. But the process by what happened in that recovery is detailed
1: in the book. We just got about a a minute and a half here before the break and we'll come back and discuss further. But getting back to sort of the business lessons and the life lessons, the W in Twisted is wisdom. Explain where, where that comes in.
2: Any successful company, any successful company has to have somebody with the smarts to see things. Like I said, you know, it's the ability to see things 10 days, 10, 10 months, ten ten 10 weeks, 10 years from now. So that's the inherent wisdom. And not everybody in a company has to have it at all. You know, you can't have five quarterbacks. But you have to have somebody that possesses enough wisdom to see things through when nobody else can see things through. So all the tenacity in the world is not going to last you unless you're smart enough to apply it. And we'll get into the further descriptions of the letters later on. But that's really what the W really uh, why the W is so important. And that was you. And that was me. And I would say this. Yeah, I would say this D on the creative side, me on the business side. Because Dee always wrote these phenomenal songs and he was driven. And so it worked in tandem that way.
1: J.J. French, founding member, Twisted Sister, and uh, the book just out and available at fine bookstores everywhere. Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life and Rock and Roll. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The truth
0: is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett
1: from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with J.J. French, founding member, Twisted Sister... The Abysmar is Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. First of all, before we forget, how do we get a copy, JJ?
2: Well, the easiest way I think is Amazon right now. If it's not in your bookstore, Amazon always has it and it's doing really, really well. So I believe there may be some signed copies left at Barnes & Noble in New York City on Fifth Avenue and maybe at Book Soup in Los Angeles. If you call Book Soup or the Barnes and Noble in uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York City, they may have some signed copies left. Otherwise, uh, you have to buy copies of it. And and if you do get a copy through Amazon, please leave a review. They've all been
1: great, and I would greatly appreciate that you do that. It's it's a wild ride, I have to say. You know, beginning with your your early days growing up Jewish, New York, nineteen fifties. You know, selling Boy Scout cookies and setting records, and uh, from there into a, a life of uh, sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And then, of course, the uh, the mammoth success of the band. Uh, overnight success, 20 years in the making. Let's talk about inspiration, the I in Twisted. Yeah.
2: So I go into what tenacity is. Without tenacity, you got nothing. And without wisdom, uh, being able to apply it. But you know what, Richard? Inspiration is the whole deal. And it, Because the inspiration is what drives you. You know, in the early days of uh, an artist's dream, all you have is inspiration. You don't have anything else. You haven't figured out a way to monetize it. But you just have this... Deep desire. And you know what that means? That means you're willing to sacrifice everything you've ever done in your life for this dream that you have. And that's the separation between people who, suc- who really, really make it and people who don't. You know, a gold medalist, a skater who wins a gold medal, is they win the gold medal because they were up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And they had to do it. But you and I aren't going to be doing that at 4 o'clock in the morning. But the person who wins a gold medal, they're going to be doing it at 4 o'clock in the morning. And that's the difference. you know. So why do they do it? Because when they were 10 or 8 or 7 or 6, they watched the Olympics and saw some phenomenal skater and said, I can do that. So inspiration is what fuels your passion. And hopefully, if you're in a business, you can convert that inspiration into money. Because inspiration does not last indefinitely. I look at it as like a pool or like a cup of fuel. And, you know, you keep dipping into it. And eventually, the inspiration has to convert into monetary success because you got to pay your bills. You have to have a life. So your inspiration does work, but you need to be inspired. And like you were inspired by listening to the Johnny Carson show, I was inspired by watching the Beatles on TV and seeing all these great artists that I had the luxury of watching the film more East growing up because you could see them for $3 any night of the week. And, you know, people don't have that anymore. They don't have that ability, but you can have YouTube, but it's not the same thing.
1: Just do uh, want to get back to the, um, you know, when the band finally just went, you know, crazy, successful, stay hungry. Um, MTV obviously had a huge, a huge part in that. What was that? What was like that? Like when the success finally came after all of those years and the, and the money started coming in.
2: Well, I felt like we were an 18 month pregnant woman that finally gave birth because, you know, the band had been together for so long and had played so many shows, which are detailed in the book. All the 9000 performances are detailed in the book, which is pretty crazy to look at it. You know, success is a is a measure of of um, preparedness, meaning opportunity. You know, that's really it, it, you know you can you can call it luck, but you know if you're prepared to take advantage of the great situation when it finally comes, it comes. It just so happens that we coincided with MTV, and that was a great time. Well, it was a good time and it was a bad time. Um, our videos became super famous, and our videos shot us into the mega world. And nowhere was that more exemplified than in Canada, because in much music. Um, you guys didn't pick every American band. You picked a couple of them, and we were one of them. And you blasted us everywhere. So between Much Music and the radio stations, um, it was pretty astonishing. However, I will tell you this. I was 32 at that point when the band you know, hit the big time, and I'm really glad I was 32, because I think if I did it at 22, it would have been much more distorted in my head. By the time I was 32... I had all that cynicism, all that self-doubt to the point where I wasn't interested in the parties. I wasn't interested in their excesses. All I wanted was a check. I wanted to go home. And I'm grateful for being older because I think if I was 22, it could have just been stupid. But instead, I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to spend money right now. I'm not going to get crazy right now because it could all end tomorrow. That comes with being older and being smarter, not with youth. You know, people mistake the biggest mistake that people who become famous make is that they think fame lasts forever. And it does not. You know, you do not own fame. You rent fame. The public allows you to rent it for a certain period of time. And maybe if you're fortunate, like the Beatles or Madonna or Michael Jackson, you have a lifetime of fame. But think about this. Think about this curve. You know, Twist has been around for 49 years. And we've had an extraordinary career. But we were super famous in 1984, 85, 86. Someone like Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, they remained at this level. That's an insane level. It can drive you crazy, actually. It really can drive you crazy. I'm not a fan of celebrity at all. I like an anonymity. I like being able to just walk around and not have anybody, you know, recognize me and bother me. Um, but so I'm able to, to to keep it in perspective. But I always kept it in perspective. So this is my feeling about fame. Celebrity is worth two things. One, you can get a reservation in most restaurants, and two, you can get a good doctor if you need it. You know, and I've taken advantage of both of those situations. So if I call up a restaurant as just me, no, but if I call up as the assistant to JJ French who's in town with a producer and like a table, magically, Richard, I get a table.
1: It's good to okay? be king. <laughs> it's
2: good, yeah. And it doesn't matter. I can do that with almost any restaurant anywhere. You know, so, you know why? They just Google you right there anyway. If they <laughs> even they don't know you, that's they it. go. Who's the guy? Oh, oh, it's him! Oh, all of a sudden we have a table.
1: So that that what you were describing about being thirty-two and being able level-headed, and that sounds like the S in twisted stability.
2: Yeah, and that's a good. That's a nice segue. So, what is stability in a company? Well, stability. If you look at any business at all, like a plane, when does a plane fly the most efficiently? When it's just nice and smooth. But what happens when you hit turbulence? You start shaking. So most businesses and most people run into turbulence. How bad is that turbulence? Well, turbulence takes shape in a lot of different ways. I always say that there's there's um, challenges, turbulence, there's crises, turbulence, and then there's catastrophe, turbulence. And you need to be able to understand the difference between challenges, crises, and catastrophes and be able to respond correctly because you know what? You don't want the catastrophe under any circumstances. And so being able to handle Heavy-duty problems like when our truck got blown up. You know, everybody could freak out with with that happens, or during these rejections, or you know, when a band member almost dies, or when the drummer, when the when the singer pulled a gun out on the drummer and almost killed him. I mean, we're you know watching all this stuff and learning how to survive this stuff is an extraordinary experience. So I have uh, explained in detail um, how to perceive problems that come into your company, how to differentiate between the daily challenges versus the crises prior to the catastrophes. And then also I explain the difference between reactive and and proactive trauma. Now, that sounds like really high-minded stuff, something that you get out of a business school. Why do you have a heavy metal guitar player talking about proactive and reactive trauma? I mean, that almost sounds so professorial, it's like mind-boggling. But the truth is, is that there's two types of, of, of traumas that will hit you personally and hit your business. And one is trauma that occurs to you, which is reactive trauma and trauma that you create in order to shake things up. And let's just say, if to make it really clear, reactive trauma is your spouse just tells you that they want a divorce and you had no idea that was coming, right? None whatsoever blindsided you and, oh my God, you're freaking out. But if you decided you wanted a divorce, you would proactive trauma. So you know, the divorce is coming, but you're setting yourself up. And so you got the flak jacket on the helmet on, you realize this shit, excuse me, the stuff is going to hit the fan and um, you're prepared for it. Well, in business, it's the same thing. You have proactive and you have reactive and the best way to handle your business is with, with, with proactively. Like you want to be the one who sees the problems. You want to be the one that has to shake things up. Every time I changed a band member, it was proactive trauma. Changing a band member is not a fun thing to do. Changing a band member is a crisis.
1: Right, right. We are, we're just so, about out of time, uh, JJ. Very quickly, you and D, do you get together a lot? You, uh, he just celebrated his 40th anniversary. Talk about yes, stability.
2: I, yeah, I was his MC at that wedding. I was master of ceremonies and I ran my first marathon the next day. I reminded him, you know, I said, by the way, do you remember I was your master of ceremonies? I missed the wedding because I was training for the marathon and got, uh, got to the wedding late because I got stuck in traffic. Anyway, we're great. We talk every day. The band talks every day uh, because we license our music every day so that's because we that's our business now as we license our music and we are the most licensed band in the history of rock and roll we're not going to take it i want to rock the most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal and whether you like my band or hate my band you can never take that away from us so you're going to have to live with it. we're not going to take it for many 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 generations <laughs> and we're very pleased with that we're very pleased with our canadian following it's always been fantastic um the fact that the band continues on after nearly 50 years is is amazing and and the band has no intention of getting back together again right now that'd be like the next obvious thing is the band can get together. But if you read the book and you understand what the TWISTED is uh, and read the amount of shows we did, you'll understand why the band succeeded. And hopefully it's a blueprint for turning roadblocks into pathways, which, again, sounds like high-minded um, self-help. But it is, because that's really what Twisted Sister was for me. And, and hopefully people will learn valuable lessons from it.
1: Well, they'll have to read the book to do the, uh, the, to get the T, E, and D in Twisted. JJ, what a a thrill hanging out with you for the last hour. Thank you so much.
2: Richard, always a pleasure. And uh, I love listening to your show. We'll continue to always be a fan. Thank you.
1: JJ French, founding member, Twisted Sister. And the book again is Twisted Business. Lessons from my life in rock and roll. All right, plenty of show to come. Coming up in hour two, my conversation with a former deputy coroner from the Midwest and the author of I See Dead People.
0: The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. For nearly nine years, Donna Francourt was a deputy coroner who worked medicological death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths. Lacking access to structured debriefings, Frankfurt turned to journaling as a way of privately unpacking the profound grief she faced and preserving her own mental well-being. As she did, she found herself in a conundrum of perplexing relationships with both the living and the dead with her book i've seen dead people she shares her unfiltered thoughts and emotions as she navigates a world most of us cannot imagine a world francourt was drawn to out of a genuine desire to help others during their darkest hours hey donna how are you welcome
3: Well, hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: You know, this is a world that most of us have no concept of your previous work as a a deputy coroner. First of all, what does a deputy coroner do?
3: What a deputy coroner does now, there's either coroners or there's deputy coroners. Coroners are elected officials, at least in the state or where I live deputy coroners are hired and sworn in. And what we do is we are called out to any unwitnessed, suspicious or unexpected death. We get to the death scene. Of course, the pair, you know, if it's, if it's definite that the person has died, we are then paged out. The police are already on site. The fire department has been there. And so once we arrive, then we will Uh, pronounce the time of death, we will examine the body, we will draw fluids for toxicology, whether it's blood urine or vitreous, vitreous is from the eye, and then that's sent in for toxicology. And we determine whether there's going to be an autopsy. If we do believe that there's something suspicious to rule that out, we notify the uh, next of kin, take photos, uh, bag and tag the body, help to transport the body to whether it's the morgue or a funeral home. And we also attend autopsies.
1: Right. Now your entree into this whole field is quite interesting because your your background was in in government travel. So how did you get from government travel into becoming a deputy coroner? That's quite a journey.
3: <laughs> That's quite a difference, isn't it? I had gone through a divorce in the early 2000s and we had younger sons, two sons. and I want I had had a little bit of medical background, uh, not a lot, but like certified nursing assistant. I'd worked with a couple of nephrologies at what uh, nephrologists at a couple of uh, clinics. I had worked up at a local hospital on the neurosurgical floor as a clinical technician. So when I went through the divorce and our sons would be spending weekends with their dad, I thought, what can I do that's going to be constructive, that's going to help the community? And I had heard a a coworker that was also involved with a, a victim crisis response team that worked with five police departments in the area It was all on a, you know, you'd have a pager and then whenever you're available, you would be paged out to calls ranging from anything from domestic abuse to up to death. And so I thought that would be perfect. That'll be something that I can help the community. It's a volunteer position. And so I went in front of a panel of police officers and went through the interview. I was accepted and then I went through training and got my pager. And so through being a victim crisis responder, which we would, was more on a level of helping the families, the loved ones that were involved in whatever case was being handled at the time, whether it was, if they were so distraught that we would help them to make phone calls, you know, even just dialing the phone, making coffee, uh, getting washcloths to help their, their brow, you know, if they were sweating um, stuffed animals to the the children, and so through those calls, I had gotten to know a couple of the coroners in the different counties and one of i had we had struck up a conversation one day, and the coroner was included, and he had complimented me on how I was dealing with families and how I would help the families in what way that I could and also through a lot of the cases i I seemed to be asked many times to help to physically remove the body when there was a death involved as physically, you know, just to help carry the body out. And death had always frightened me because we had had tragedy in our family uh, with murder and mugging, you know, stabbings and so on. And so death scared me. And, but I was intrigued by it. I was fascinated. So I had thanked him for the compliment and said that if he was ever looking for another deputy to please let me know. And this was what I had for in my background, a little bit of medical. And so about a year later, I got a call from him. He was considering hiring on another deputy, which uh, if I was still interested, I could follow him on all of these cases. He would see how I did, how I handled it. And after another about nine months of his training and following him on some of the worst cases, of course, they're all bad, most of them, right? Because they range from homicide, to suicide, to car fatality, to drownings, drug overdoses. But they also include people that go to hospitals, emergency rooms. And if they expire under 24 hours, that's when a coroner is called in. So he had offered me the position. I took the position. I got my badge and sworn in and off I went. And so I was still working. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Thank no, you. I was just
1: going to say, that's interesting. You you mentioned you personally and your family had sudden deaths. You had yes. an experience with trauma, sudden deaths. Can you share a little bit of that?
3: I had one uncle that uh, was, was um, manually strangled, and I don't know actually what the circumstances were, why the person that killed him. Uh, They did find my uncle's car. They found his wallet with his money. So I'm not sure what the motive was. He had gone down to a Southern state to visit his daughter, my cousin, and he was found in his hotel room, manually strangled. And then I had another uncle and it was really quite sad because uh, my mother was born and raised in Ireland. So her sister, my aunt, also from ireland her husband was from great britain and he did not want to come over to the united states because he was thinking of back then it was like the john wayne cowboys you know shoot him up and a the lot of west. the wild west so they were separated for about 10 years he stayed over there my aunt and my cousin uh, male cousin came over here and settled in in the midwest in a larger city. Anyhow, eventually he did come over, and he was a real dapper, kind, soft-spoken man. Within the first year, he was uh, mugged, and he was stabbed several times, throat slashed, but he survived for thirty dollars. He survived, but then you know he had all these medical issues and became a recluse and. Uh, lived a few more years. So yes, we've had tragedy. And then like everybody, we all have friends and family that pass away from car fatalities, or I had friends that were hit, you know, from car fatalities.
1: What was your perspective on death before getting into this whole field?
3: I, because I was uh, raised Catholic, and not to get into religion, but of course, with With Catholics, it's when you die, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. So I, I always believed that once you die, that's it. You're done. You go to heaven. But after becoming a deputy coroner and doing that profession for so many years, my whole beliefs and thoughts on what happens once you die has totally changed. It's totally changed. I do believe that... Once you die, our bodies are left behind, but we still have our souls and the energy and it will continue on. There's levels, there's dimensions.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what happens as as a deputy coroner, because. Again, your background is in government travel. You volunteered. You were primarily, I think, interested in volunteering and being there for the families but what, what happens as a volunteer, as a, um, as a deputy coroner, when you arrive on the scene of an unexpected death, which is kind of treated as a crime scene right from the get-go, what what are the protocols?
3: Well, and when I was a deputy coroner, that was not a volunteer position. That was a paid position through the county. When, yes, every death is considered, where a coroner is involved, is considered a crime scene. The coroner has possession of the body, whereas the scene itself is under control of the police. And so then in unison, we all work together to uh, investigate the scene and make sure to rule out that there was anything suspicious. So let's say um, there's a death. They find a body in a home. The police, uh, someone calls, the police are there. They then call the coroner. They wait for the coroner coroner to get there the body is not moved because again the coroner has to pronounce the time of death so then once i would I'll say refer to myself once i would arrive on scene i would uh of course be directed to the body i would uh pronounce the time of death would go over the body to see if there are any visible markings on the body check the eye for any like uh trauma to the, the eye, there could be uh, little red dots, which would show that there's trauma. Uh, and then that's why we would draw fluids for toxicology, because someone, you know, it may, they, they may not have any visible signs of any struggle or, you know, you look for the lividity uh, where the pool, once the body, the heart stops and the, pot, the body is laying in one position, the blood will pool to whatever position that body is in. So if you find a body and they've got uh, red, red blotches of blood that have settled, on, uh, let's say, on their legs, the front of their legs, but yet they're laying on their back, then you know that body must have been moved because that body was dead, the blood stopped, it should have been pooled on the back. So we examine the body, we would take a lot of photos, and then there would be uh, determining whether we're going to have an autopsy or order an autopsy uh, talk with the family if they happen to be on scene then we would of course respectfully ask that they stay out of the room while we do the investigation and then we would or they would uh, advise if there was not going to be an autopsy what funeral home they wanted to go to i would then once the funeral directors arrived on scene if there was not going to be an autopsy they would help me to Lift the body, put them into the body bag, bag and tag, I'd fill out all the paperwork, uh, and then go through the scene of the investigation for any kind of uh, possibly any illegal narcotics or weapons. And so it was just putting all of the pieces together together. Once the body was removed from the scene if there was not going to be an autopsy then they'd go to the funeral home and then the funeral directors would take over from that point. We did as coroners also sign the death certificates the cause of death we would sign as far as cremation if the body was going to be cremated uh, after 48 hours there's a 48 hour period that you cannot cremate a body and within that 48 hours then it would be, the the family has to s- have authorization or sign authorization for the cremation. Of course, if there's anything suspicious, then that's that's delayed as well. While the while the investigation is going on, if it happens to be something like a car fatality um, where there are, it can be very gory where there's body parts that are strewn. It's our responsibility to pick up as much of the all, not as much, but all of the the human remains so that it all goes together respectfully in the body bag to wherever it's going to go to the autopsy
1: i can't imagine being placed in that situation and and i don't know what how you were prepared for that you must remember your first every uh, you must remember every single case but The amount of trauma you must have gone through, were you ever provided any counseling? How did you deal with it?
3: No, there was no counseling. We did not have debriefing, at least in the county that I was in. And you're right. It was extremely emotional, physically, mentally, psychologically, because you can't after these cases, you can't go home and discuss with your family what you just experienced. And when you're hands on in death, it take it's a whole different level. It's not like watching a movie on TV. I mean, yes, that can be gory on TV. But when you're there, and you're seeing you're feeling and you're smelling and the emotions, not only are you dealing with that, that part of the investigation, but you also have to notify loved ones that they're that their loved one has died tragically. And then you are in the throes of their emotional reactions of grief and such—it's just so, so sad. And you take that home with you. And so I would try to keep this real brave front, um, and everything was inside me. And that's how eventually I started writing because I had to, I had to put it somewhere. And I, you know, you don't discuss with anybody these cases again because of the confidentiality. And I thought maybe by writing. Uh, that would help me,
1: right? You became you began journaling, and that is the basis of your book. I see dead people. Do you think, looking yes. back, that you suffered from post traumatic stress dis- uh, disorder?
3: Oh, absolutely. I've been told that I have post traumatic stress, and I've also been told by a chaplain who worked with the county that I worked in that. He believes that everybody that works in that capacity or any type of capacity that involves such tragedy and death, we all, to some degree, have post-traumatic stress.
1: In the meantime, you're divorced. You have two young children. How are you dealing with that? I mean, this is not dinner conversation. How are you dealing with, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine your children talking to mom after a day's work, you know, Hey mom, how did your day go? What do you, what do you tell them?
3: You know, uh, God love them. They, my oldest, I have two sons and my oldest son um, when the book was published said to me, Oh my God, mom, we knew what, I knew what you did, but I didn't realize how much you did. And now it all makes sense. I'm sure in looking back in hindsight, they would think about the times that I was very quiet or, um, you know, kind of retreated away from wanting to do things because I was I was processing whatever cases I might have been on because I was still working full time in government travel and then I was working as a deputy coroner, starting pay, going on the pager at like seven o'clock at night on a Friday night and I many weekends for years I would be on call until Sunday or you know whether it was twenty four hours or forty eight. And so not only was I working, I felt it was my responsibility to make sure that, you know, I still had uh, money coming in. And again, I wanted to do things for the family. I, I, I don't know if it was that I felt like because the marriage had failed, I wanted to do something that I felt was was a good thing that was helping others, maybe others that were dealing with, uh, well, with tragedies. And that would get my mind off of the fact that I had a failed marriage. I was now a single mom. You know, I came from uh, a family, parents, both parents, loving environment. And so I felt bad about that. But I wanted to give back to the community and help people. I'm a helper. I'm empathetic. So...
1: How did that, I I don't know what your prior experiences were with death were. Um, How did that feel the first time you saw a dead body, you had to touch a dead body? You had to smell death? How did that, what was that, walk me through that.
3: Yes. Um, And I also wanted to, I'm sorry, I was going to mention before also, you would ask me about my son's they were very intuitive to my emotions and they also, which is probably further we'll discuss, but um, the spiritual part of it that I believe that our our souls continue on in the energy, they were also dealing with spirits. But um, the first time that I did experience death firsthand as a deputy coroner was a suicide and This is a horrible comparison, but this is all that I can think of in my, when I think of it, is, you know, the Wizard of Oz, where the house, it's in black and white, and she's up in the air, right? And the house is spinning around, but it's all black and white. And then the house lands, the door opens, and it's all in color. It's vibrant color. For me, driving to that scene, everything was in color, although I was like, oh my God, you know, my shoulder's tense. Wondering what was like, what was going to happen now? What was this experience going to be like? And once I walked through the door of this, the crime scene or the scene, everything stood still. Everything went black and white. My jaw dropped. All I could say was, because they had the body, they pulled him. He had committed suicide by a high power rifle and um, had in a like a crawl space. And so they'd already pulled his body out and he was on the floor and his face was gone. And I just, my jaw dropped, I was in shock. I mean, it was like my, my what my eyes were seeing, my mind, I couldn't grasp, you know, like it was so surreal. And they all knew that the police on scene and then I was still training. So I was with my boss and they gave me those few seconds to absorb what I was looking at after I'd said, oh my God, Maybe waiting to see if I would turn around and you know run out, <laughs> or if I'd I'd stay on scene. But then everything came back into motion, and I followed direction. It was just I kept looking at this person, and my emotions were running amok because I was thinking uh, how how frightening this was, how scary, but also thinking of that person. I never lost sight that every dead body was someone's loved one someone's mother father sister brother and i was always very respectful on the scene with every decedent because i would want to be treated that way and i would want my loved ones to be handled with respect and dignity and so then i just kept focusing on the fact that this was someone's loved one and wanted to make sure through the investigation that it was ruled out that there wasn't any foul play and they didn't die prematurely at the hands of another
1: all right, we'll take a quick timeout. Donna Frankart is the former deputy coroner in the Midwest and the author of I See Dead People. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in two minutes. Stay with us.
0: The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett
1: from Zoomer Radio. For nearly nine years, Donna Frankart was a deputy coroner who worked medical-legal death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths. Lacking access to a structured debriefings, Frankart turned to journaling as a way of privately unpacking the profound grief she faced and presenting her own mental well-being. As she did, she found herself in a conundrum of perplexing relationships with both the living and the dead. With her book, I've Seen Dead People, Donna shares her unfiltered thoughts and emotions as she investigates a world most of us cannot imagine, a world Frank Hart was drawn to out of a genuine desire to help others during their darkest hours. Welcome back. Donna Frank is with us, former deputy coroner in the Midwest. And the author of I See Dead People. When did some of the uh, deceased start hitching a ride home with you?
3: Well, uh, it was probably after that I started noticing things were happening on scene and realizing, wow, this is a bit strange. You know, I, I think there's more going on here that's from the afterlife had a and it's in the book uh, one case that I was on where there was a young man and he he had had medical issues. It ended up it was not anything suspicious. It was just you know through his his medical condition, and he uh, was a Wiccan. So he was in and I, I'm not really into that, but the the witches and you know I respect them for what they do, but. In looking for a next of kin, we found his ex-wife. His ex-wife asked if we'd noticed the altar, and we had noticed an altar. And then she said that he, you know, that they practiced this and wanted to know if they could have his skull to carve his skull. But anyhow, so he was laying on the floor, and I wanted to draw blood for toxicology, And there were probably about five officers standing around me, and I got down on my haunches, and I was just about to insert the needle in for blood, and my pager went off, and of course I'm jumpy, and I jumped, and I you know tried not to fall into it, which I didn't fall into him. Answered the page. That was that just happened. That the pager went off, and we everybody just kind of chuckled, like, "Ooh, you know, didn't expect that." Went back to the the body got down on my haunches, went to insert the needle again. And there was a rotary phone on the wall and it started screeching, ringing. And we kind of jumped and the lieutenant grabbed the phone off the wall and said, hello. I was like, hello, hello, hello. And there was no answer. So we just kind of shrugged. He put it back on the wall. Of course, I jumped back again. So again, I tried to insert the needle. Same thing happened. The phone started ringing on the wall. About that time, coins started appearing at the side of this decedent's head. And one of the officers said, did you notice those coins down by his head before? Well, no one had seen coins, but they were starting to appear. They chuckled a little bit. And I said, I wouldn't laugh because he's here and he's watching you. You need to be you know, respectful. And I was quite serious about that. Well, in trying to insert the needle again at that point, uh, I was able to complete it. They were and and I they were I was able to complete it. We just wanted to get everything wrapped up because then everybody at that point was a bit unnerved as to what was happening. So things like that. Uh, Then the spirit started following me home. Now, I was told through, and this was within a year or two, that I was noticing. uh, My son's orbs would bounce off their curtains or I saw the shadow man a couple of times. One time was in our home. I thought in the middle of the night I had to... Go to the bathroom, and I uh, kept the lights off because I didn't want to acclimate to the light. And when I opened the door, when I was coming out of the bathroom, I thought my son—they were back in high school at that time. I thought it was odd they wouldn't try to pull a prank on me in the middle of the night. But again, my mind wasn't putting two and two together. I smiled like, "Oh, ha, okay, you scared me. You're standing at the doorway here," but it didn't move. So then I put my hand out, and it went right through the spirit. And that's when I'm, you know, yeah, I ran back to my, my, my bedroom, but things started happening more and more and more uh, to all of us, including my sons, because at first I thought, am I imagining things, even though things were happening on scene, but now they're happening at home, my sons were experiencing, and it continued on through the years. Now, I believed at the time through the years that, okay, this is all part of this position. Never thought about it before. I was never one to search and seek for the, you know, the paranormal films or getting into the spirits because I'm I'm a chicken, right? It scares me, but it makes sense that if you're dealing with people that have died, passed away, they didn't expect to pass away. Uh, they're confused, is what I was told by mediums. They're confused dead. They don't know what to do. They're not ready to go. And so because I was very compassionate at the scene, this is what I've been told, uh, that I was very compassionate at the scene Which with every uh, decedent or everybody, decedent I should say, that they would follow me home. Most of them did not cross over the threshold, but many of them did. And I still, it's become actually more and more active since I've been talking about this more, that the, now that the book's been published Uh, because I'm talking about the decedents, and I have to be very respectful. And it can be a very frightening place to be if you don't know how, if you're not respectful to the dead. And some people may laugh at that, but until you've witnessed firsthand, you need to know that you need to honor and respect the dead because they are around us.
1: When you say they haven't crossed over the threshold, what, what do you mean by that?
3: Meaning that they're almost in like a limbo, their souls. You know, you go off to the next dimension, depending on what you believe in. It's either there's so many dimensions, or you're off to the next dimension, or you're going to heaven. Uh, so some of them, their souls aren't ready to go, and they're confused. I'm so, learning along the way. I was. I'm sorry.
1: No, No, no. I was just going to ask. I mean, would they when they hitched a ride? basically home with you would they suddenly you would wake up in the middle of the night and there they were a full-on apparition
3: I've had that yes I had one right high on my back now (laughs) I had a tank top on it was in the middle of the summer my sons were still in high school Uh, my younger son had come through the back door I was at the stove and I was cooking and he said to me who wrote And I'm like what And he said, here, I'll take a picture. He pulled out his cell phone. He took a picture and the shirt, and I still have that picture. Something had written high on my back. After that had happened, I was very unnerved because I thought, I didn't believe you are supposed to touch the living, right? So I had gone to a medium, and the medium had told me uh, the person, the decedent that had actually left High on my back and told helped him to cross over. And that's where a lot of the mediums or there's some of their psychics, there's mediums, there's shamans, the ones that connect with the spirits that will help them to cross over. I was just at a, a medium, a quantum healer a few weeks ago, and I had two attachments that he had to help cross over. Because I've been told in the last Well, since the book was published, I've been talking to people all over the world. Uh, I had a doctor call me about a month and a half ago. She was going to, and she also connects with spirits and she's in a different state. And she told me that her spirit guides had reached out or had told her in big capital letters and exclamations that she needed to get a hold of me because I was like this beacon of light and all of these spirits are attracted to me and they're coming to me and they all have a story to tell. And if I don't know how to protect myself, that it can be very it can be a dangerous place to be. Because I don't. Again, I'm I'm not a medium. She had asked me why I was looking for a job because I was actually looking for different jobs. And she said, You already have a job, you're a medium. And I said, No, I'm not a medium. I don't have spirits come to me and you know give me messages that I should give to the living. And she said, Donna, there's all kinds of mediums, but you are an open portal to these spirits that are coming to you.
1: All right. We'll take a quick time out. Donna Frankard, former deputy coroner in the Midwestern United States and the author of a brand new book called I see dead people soon, hopefully to be seen on A big screen near you. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us.
0: The truth is not out there. It's right here.
1: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Donna Frankert, former deputy coroner. The book is I See Dead People. Let's talk about how this book came about, because, again, you didn't. You didn't have access to a psychologist. You weren't being debriefed. You were seeing all of this trauma, this horror. Um, there was no one there for you to help you, sort of, you know, deal with all of this stuff. So you began journaling. That's how the book began, right?
3: Yes, and I want to say that you know people out there will ask, "Well, why didn't you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist?" Well, I was working full-time and part-time, but I was a single parent. And so with the insurance that I had, it might cover a few sessions, but I felt like this needed a lot more than just a couple of sessions. Then it would have been out of pocket. And so I was more focused on making sure that I was paying my bills and, you know, raising my my sons in the best way that I could. So I started journaling, and I felt by, and this would be when I'd be by myself in my room or behind the closed door, I felt like it was purging, getting it on paper, because I uh, not so much wanted to write a clinical book about forensics, but I wanted to bring into it the emotions that I was going through, how it affected me, and how the families handled their emotions in losing a loved one tragically or unexpectedly, and so through that writing, and this went on for several years, like I said, I felt like I was purging it I was getting it on paper and I was able to process it, hoping I could then compartmentalize and maybe leave it behind. But in all honesty, I don't think you can ever leave it behind. It's always those memories and those scenes are always going to be with you. I mean, to this day now, if I hear the sirens going off or um, – I'm around friends that are are in that, you know, the police or fire department, wherever. I'm almost missing being out there and helping people. So I felt that by writing this book, and it was mainly, like I said, for healing. But then I was uh, introduced by a friend who is in the film industry, Jeff Ohm. He's very well known. He worked on the Revenant, Titanic, uh, Fifth Element, many, many films, Shrek. And he introduced me to um, a friend and a, an associate or someone else that works on film. Someone else, I shouldn't say someone else, but uh, my publisher was Gary Revel, and he owns um, Jongler Books, Jongler Film and Music. And so uh, he read my book, they believed in my book, and so it was published and I was amazed at how many people came forward and were interested. But when you think about it, death is a very taboo subject. Either people are afraid to talk about it, they even though it's inevitable, we're all going to die, but everybody is curious, they're afraid or they want to know. And so it's just a common denominator amongst the human race that we all are going to die and we all hope that it's going to be. Um, more than what some of us might think it is. And I, I was hoping that I had a takeaway in my book. So I tried to think of something positive when I was writing these. At the end of every chapter, I had a positive, even though there was so much sadness and grief. I wanted to get out there that, yes, life is precious and embrace the moments. Be thankful that you wake up every morning. Watch out and look look over and take care of your elders and your neighbors and be kind when you can. And uh, Monetary things are wonderful, but you can't take them with you. So enjoy the vibrance of a flower. And I know it sounds cliche, but, you know, the wind as it blows against your face. Enjoy those moments because we never know when our last moment is here on Earth.
1: I, I agree. I think ultimately death is... Really, when you think about it, the only topic, the only subject, because we all want to know what happens after we die, which leads into a discussion of what are we, who are we, why are we here? It's the only subject, ultimately, that matters. Everything leads up to that moment of death. Uh, how did your, we just have a, a minute here before we break away here, but how did your perception of death change through this job, through this career?
3: Oh boy, has it changed. I am no longer afraid of death. However, I am also learning and trying to cope with the many spirits that are coming to me, trying to learn how to handle it. Um, It's very frightening. And so I say to everyone out there that thinks it's great it's fun you know let's go on these ghost hunts be respectful because it can be very da- it can be a very very dangerous world to be in unless you know what you're dealing with and you're prepared so but right. i am i i'm looking at it as being respectful to the spirits i do believe that our loved ones that have passed on are waiting for us when we transition over and i'm embracing life every moment that i'm here
1: all right, Donna, a quick timeout. Back with more of our discussion in two minutes. Donna Frankard is a former deputy coroner in the Midwestern United States and the author of I See Dead People. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away.
0: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
1: Wow, I am enjoying this conversation with Donna Franker. So close to death, has smelled death, touched death. And again, this is ultimately, for most of us, we're all heading in this direction. This is ultimately the only, to me, subject that matters. Where are we going after we die? What's what's beyond the veil? And um, I wanted to ask you, you can't be the only person in this field, deputy coroner, coroner, pathologist, medical examiners, who are grappling with this issue. I don't know if you have conventions, conferences, but you must meet with other people in your field. Is this like the little secret that nobody wants to talk about publicly? Do they all have these experiences?
3: Well, and this is my opinion and my experiences working with people in the death industry at least within the people in the community that I worked in. Uh, I do believe that it's happening all over to many, but I, I think my opinion that they don't want to talk about it because number one, maybe if they're funeral directors, they don't want to frighten people. They don't want people that don't believe in the spirits Uh, think that there's something off about them, you know, but mainly not want to frighten people, but it's happening. Ever since the book published, it's been very interesting. I've had people reach out to me from all over the world. I had one coroner uh, who's in a Southern state. Her husband is a police officer and she reached out to me and we talked quite a bit. We've become friends, but she was saying to me, Oh my God. Yes. I, we have so much activity. And I, I was like, Oh, tell me about it. Well, she said that every night her husband has to have a fan on the, in the bedroom because this the footprints of the spirit, they must have wooden floors. They hear the footprints about one o'clock in the morning coming down the hallway, and then it comes into their bedroom and sits down on their bed, and the bed will move down. <laughs> and I said to her, oh, my God, how can you handle that? I mean, do you ever think about selling the house or, you know? seeing how to get rid of it. And she said, well, we can't sell it because it was her husband's, it, it, it was handed down through the generations, So it was like like the great grandparents, grandparents owned, and then her his parents, and now they own it. And so he doesn't know if it's one of his loved ones that have passed over, or if either of them have brought home a spirit from one of the death scenes that, were, that they were on. But they deal with that on a nightly basis, basis and they have for years. And then I had a forensic uh, technician out of Great Britain reach out to me. And of course, he uh, in telling me that he enjoyed my book and he could also relate to it because he works in the morgue, right, with autopsies, doing autopsies. And he said, oh, yeah, we have things that are being pushed off the shelves all the time. You know, it's like matter of factly. And I, I can say that locally, the people that I was uh, dealing with, working with in the death industry we would talk about um, the spirits and the things that they would do to try to keep all the goodness in the funeral homes, whether it was uh, lavender that they put along the windowsills. And, and I've had so many that have reached out to me in different professions, mainly in the medical field or in the death industry that do connect with spirits. And it's like, we have this commonality and it's drawing us all together from all over the world. It's amazing. It's like, wow, how did I get into this? How did I get so into this? But I, I'm looking at it that it it's just, I'm here hoping that I can share my experiences with the world for them to not fear death and to also know how to handle and respect the spirit world.
1: So when someone passes and they pass unexpectedly, in other words, they're not lingering, they're not waiting to die, they don't have a a terminal illness, and they die suddenly, those factors seem to be kind of crucial in terms of, um, let's say, a visitation or a a spirit coming forth and and crossing, uh, or you're encountering a spirit, let's say. Can you give me an example of someone who, I mean, you went to a scene of an unexpected death, and that person came to you. Did they Did they communicate? Did they reveal anything to you about their death, maybe clues that might have been important as to why they passed?
3: Well, and this is the thing that I'm learning how to handle. As I'd said to that doctor when she'd said, well, you already have a job, you're a medium. And I said, no, I'm not a medium. I don't have these messages from spirit world that I'm supposed to relay to loved ones here on earth. And she said, there were so many different types of mediums. What's happening to me is these spirits come to me and uh, they're there. And I think they're waiting for me to say something or help them. But my reaction is I I panic, (laughs) you know, and I retreat. And so that's what I'm learning how to handle if there's any way that I can help them. So, yes, I have had I've had them uh, talk to me, call out my name. Um, They mainly appeared in front of me and then I freak out and they disappear. I don't know if I scare them back, but or they don't want to scare me anymore uh, at that moment because I'm trying to catch myself from having a, a heart attack. Um, But I'm not getting the messages, but I've been told that I need to learn how to help them to cross over, whether it's that I tell them I'm here for you, I'll walk by your side, and then mentally I'm supposed to help them to walk to the light, to, you know, go to the lightness, go, you need to cross over. I did have an attach, I had two attachments that I had, uh, Someone um, helped cross over two weeks ago, and neither of them died tragically. So, there are people here on earth now. One of them, um, he didn't dry, die tragically, he was an old, he was an elderly man, but apparently, he had actually, I knew him, he was a family member. He had uh, gone through a divorce, he felt guilty about that because he was raised Catholic, Irish Catholic, you know, and he. Didn't think that he was going to make it into heaven and so he was afraid that when he died he was never going to make it there and he happened to be one of them that was attached to me that this medium helped him to cross over new things about this person that i'm related to that no one would know he doesn't even live in the same country i'm talking about um like his name, his his uh, name from birth, which he was never, even his death certificate didn't have his actual name. So the guy couldn't have, the person couldn't have Googled and fi- found out this personal information on my uncle, who he was, but he needed that crossing over. So it's not all, I I, I honestly don't have the answer to that yet. I'm still learning, trying to understand why. If it's just that I've opened up this portal, they feel the compassion coming from me. And so whether something happened when they were living that they need direction, it's not all tragedy.
1: Donna, what's happening with the book? Again, plans to make this into a motion picture.
3: Well, um, Jeff Ohm, who is the director, will be the director. He's been reaching out to uh, agents for A-list actors to um, take on some of the major roles. I'm also writing the second book, the edition or the sequel, I guess, is that what you'd call it, Um, which is going to be um, talking all about all of the paranormal activity that I'm dealing with now and how I'm coping with it.
1: So at this point, yes. How do we get a copy of I See Dead People?
3: I've Seen Dead People is available on Amazon. It's in hardcover, paperback, e-reader, large print. And I also am now, I just signed a contract, or we did, with Jongler Publishing uh, and Tandor to do audio, which I don't have a targeted date yet yet hoping that within the new year, it'll be out in audio. So I'm excited about that as well.
1: Fantastic. Donna, you're doing the Lord's work. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure meeting you.
3: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Donna Frankert, former deputy coroner in the Midwestern United States and the author of I see dead people coming to a big screen soon near you. All right. My thanks to, Carlos Kajina and Ryan White I'll be back next week With a brand new live program In the meantime Don't be afraid There's nothing concealed That won't be revealed And nothing hidden That won't be made known What you hear in the dark Speak in the light What I say in a whisper Proclaim from the housetops Move over Aphrodite I'm coming home Good night